The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. May 17th, 2018. In a small, stifling cinderbox room of California State Prison sits James Holland, a Texas ranger known as the Serial Killer Whisperer. He has unrivaled expertise in obtaining dark confessions from unwilling criminals and has traveled over 1,400 miles today to meet with 79-year-old Samuel Little. Holland hopes that he'll somehow be able to elicit a confession from this dangerous man. A man who's currently serving multiple life sentences for three brutal murders in the 1980s and who's suspected of at least 12 further homicides. Little, however, has maintained his innocence since his arrest in 2012. Holland's watch reads 10.21 a.m., and the single door to the small prison room creaks open. Slowly emerging on four wheels and a rusting chair is the hunched, elderly figure of Samuel Little. As the prisoner straightens himself up to shake Holland's hand, it's clear to see how this man, although now infirm, was once capable of murder. Little's frame is fairly small, but powerful and muscular, with hands that look unnaturally large. Wearing an expression of resolute hatred on his face, he asks Holland who he is and why he's here. Holland thinks fast for a response, aware that Little's contempt for the police could jeopardize any chance of a confession today. He smoothly lies that he's here simply to spend time with Little and begins their conversation by asking him what he likes to be called. Little admits that his name's Samuel, but his friends and mother call him Sammy. It's a remark that makes Holland laugh kindly, explaining that although his name is James, his friends and family call him Jimmy. Suddenly, the two strangers have something in common. But Holland doesn't really have the time or patience for a friendly chat. So tactically steering the conversation onto Little's crimes, he tries something no one has ever used with him before. Flattery. No one knows your name. No one knows much about the murders, to tell you the truth, Holland begins. But I think you're probably one of the most interesting people in the history of our country. Holland strikes gold with this sycophantic compliment as it flatters Little's boastful ego and melts his frowning face into a smile. Taking the bait instantly, he begins to gloat about his life's collection of crimes, his ability to evade justice for decades, and finally the confession that he is guilty of murdering three women in the 1980s. But that's not all. As Little's aged face lights up in excitement, his heavy body leaning towards the camera and a triumphant smile dancing on his lips, he claims that he's killed a total of 93 women. This murder count is unbelievable. It's a horrifying total that leapfrogs the number of victims of Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway, and even Ted Bundy. But this confession doesn't seem to affect Little in any way as he remains calm, if not proud, 
in the midst of his words. With an unapologetic smile and friendly shrug, he admits that to him, murdering women is as addictive as taking drugs. And so, in front of a Texas Ranger, video camera, and two hidden FBI agents, Samuel Little becomes America's most prolific serial killer. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Samuel Little, the most deadly and dangerous killer in the history of America. It's about a young boy tormented by twisted fantasies and sinister sexual desires. The cruel reality for America's poor, lower-class women who go missing, yet are never missed. A police force trained to turn a blind eye and reluctant to acknowledge the deaths of almost 100 women. It's about the monstrous, murderous trail rampaged by Samuel Little. The unsuspecting women he mercilessly strangled to death. And the baffling question of how this murderer managed to avoid justice for 40 years. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. On September 5, 2012, Samuel Little was arrested for drug possession. While in custody, his DNA linked him to the unsolved murders of three Los Angeles women in the 1980s, and he was sentenced to life in prison. But what no one realized was that Samuel Little had potentially killed far more people than those whose deaths he was charged with. In 2019, just months before death, 
he claimed to have murdered 93 women. His confessions reveal the twisted life he led as he furiously tore through America and murdered some of its most disadvantaged women. And although his killing career spanned over 45 years, Little always managed to escape unnoticed. But what drove Little to brutally take away the lives of so many women? How did he manage to evade justice for decades? And why did America ignore the deaths of almost 100 young females? Samuel Little is born on June 7, 1940 in Reynolds, Georgia. He spends his early life in destitution as his family constantly wavers around the poverty line. Although Little enjoys the company of numerous brothers and sisters, he misses out on any motherly attention. You see, his teenage mother is largely absent during his first few years of his childhood, with reports suggesting she makes her money as a sex worker. But perhaps due to their financial struggles, the family doesn't stay in Georgia for long. And when Little is just five years old, he moves north to Lorain, Ohio to live with his grandmother. However, this relocation doesn't guarantee an easier life. And from the earliest age, Little suffers the grueling realities of America's working class. He survives on the forgotten fringes of society, where money is almost non-existent, racism is a daily battle, and drugs, crime, and even murders fail to catch the attention of the police. Little is brought up acutely aware that he's part of the impoverished population nobody seems to care about. Despite this backdrop of suffering and neglect, in some ways, Little appears to grow up as any normal American boy would. He gets on well with his brothers and sisters, attends church most weekends with his family, joins the local boxing club where he impresses the coaches with his strength and skill, and seems to be a well-liked, albeit troublesome, boy. But of course, appearances can be deceiving. And no one knows just how different Little really is. As early as kindergarten, something seemingly innocuous sets loose within him. As the small five-year-old boy listens intently to his teacher, he observes her slender hand glide towards her neck. Little watches in utter fascination as her small hand softly strokes the skin on her throat, her fingers coiling around and resting lazily in the nape of her neck. To anyone else, this action is uninteresting. They possibly don't even notice it. But to Little, it's immeasurably special. Although unaware of what it means due to his tender age, Little is aroused by the sensation of watching his teacher stroke her neck. He's drawn to the untapped power of her hand as it wraps absentmindedly around her throat. This simple touch of his teacher's neck will spark a lifelong obsession in Little for strangling women's throats. After this initial introduction to his twisted fantasy, Little is magnetized to girls. He dreams of violently killing one of his classmates in grade school who habitually plays with her hair and strokes her neck. He collects magazines and posters showing sexualized women being choked or strangled in bed, occasionally tearing out a particularly gruesome page and pinning it to his bedroom wall. 
His young mind is filled with obsessive thoughts of women's necks, throats, choking, and strangulation. There can be no doubt about it. Little is different to all the other boys of his age, and his difference is extremely dangerous. It's now 1956, and Samuel Little is 16 years old. He's grown into a strong, muscular teenager who spends his days training in the local boxing ring and his nights prowling the streets of Lorraine looking for trouble. Little has given up on his education by now. He's dropped out of high school with no qualifications or ambition, preferring to break the laws of the state than of the school. However, although his crimes have predominantly been small-scale and petty, Things take a turn for the worse when he attempts to shoplift in an expensive furniture store in Lorraine. Police catch him in the act, quickly arrest the teenager, and sentence him to three years in a juvenile detention center. These years behind bars are some of the most pivotal in Little's young life. Surrounded by like-minded criminals and dropouts, he learns invaluable tricks of the crime trade. When he's released in 1961, Little moves south to the sunny state of Florida, ready to embrace a full life outside of the law. Before even reaching his early 20s, Little boasts a rich repertoire of felonies to his name. Local and state police have charged him with numerous offenses that include driving under the influence, shoplifting, committing fraud, solicitation, armed robbery, aggravated assault, and even rape. Although several of these should land him in prison for years, Little knows how to avoid any serious punishment. He religiously obeys two rules that will serve him well for almost 50 years. The first rule he lives by is to target a particular demographic that police have no interest in protecting. This is easy for Little as he grew up a part of one of these very groups. His impoverished childhood means he's well aware that shoplifting at a small store in a poor neighborhood won't gain police attention, drunk driving in a seedy district will earn him just a few nights in jail, and, perhaps most horrifically of all, assaulting a woman of low social standing won't even raise the eyebrows of the law. The second secret to Little's evasion of justice is his restless, nomadic lifestyle. He's managed to save enough money for a cheap secondhand car, which he uses simultaneously as his quick escape vehicle and his home. He spends his days driving hundreds of miles between states, committing various felonies in each before fleeing the crime scene and disappearing onto the road again. By spending no more than a few hours in each state and without a permanent address, police have no way of linking little to his crimes. He's successfully developed a cover that guarantees invisibility from the law. But even if police were to discover his crimes and lock him in jail, they have no chance of uncovering the true danger lurking within. Little is still possessed by the dark, twisted, sexual fantasy of strangling women to death. And as he grows more confident that his felonies won't result in serious punishment, he'll begin making these fantasies a reality. New Year's Eve, 1970, 
Miami. Almost 10 years have passed since Samuel Little first moved to Florida and embarked on his nomadic lifestyle of crime. But by now, a strong, 24-year-old man and experienced criminal, he wants more than the small victories of dodging justice for juvenile offenses. Little is ready to give in to the gruesome fantasies that have overwhelmed his mind since kindergarten. He's ready for murder. As Little drives along the quiet roads of Miami, he passes a small, rundown bar and pulls up outside to buy a drink. But as he steps out of his car, he sees a short, skinny white woman limping towards him and walking unsteadily with each step. The woman is wearing a yellow sundress that hangs off her skeletal frame, and Little notices a silver chain clinging to her long neck. Her name is Mary Jo Brosley. She's a 33-year-old mother of two who's been missing from her family for almost six months and is crippled by an addiction to alcohol. Seizing advantage of Brosley's inebriated state, Little rushes from his car and offers to drive her home. But as he starts up the engine, something sinister snaps inside of him. Perhaps drawn to the silver chain hanging from Brosley's neck, or unable to resist the temptation of this woman's vulnerable condition. Little leans across his seat and violently throws himself on top of her. The two possibly engage in some sort of sexual activity, but this isn't really what Little's after. He wants to finally explore the twisted fantasies in his mind, to realize the destructive power that lurks within his muscular frame. He wants to kill. Within seconds, Little's hands are wrapped tightly around Brosley's neck, suffocating her body until it falls still. And Mary Jo Brosley, Samuel Little's first victim, is dead. It's now 1972, and Samuel Little has returned to Miami, but he doesn't waste a second worrying about Brosley's murder. You see, police discovered her body a little over a year ago in a shallow grave in one of Miami's wooded areas. Although they initially believed it was suspicious, it's since been ruled as alcohol poisoning due to the lack of obvious injury to the body and high levels of alcohol inside. So once again, Little finds himself driving along the warm, wide roads of Miami in his secondhand Pontiac Le Mans, hunting for his next victim. Spotting the garish lights of a dilapidated bar called The Pool, Little abruptly turns off 17th Avenue and parks outside. He knows that this is just the type of rundown place where he can find his next victim, someone who won't be missed. And there, standing by the door, perhaps waiting for a date or getting some fresh air from the smoky rooms inside, is a striking African-American woman. Little is transfixed by her, and realizes there's something different about her to his previous victim. The woman is transgender. As he walks over, she holds out a hand to shake and introduces herself as Marianne. Little and Marianne spend the remainder of the evening in each other's company. They possibly share a meal together and a few drinks before Little offers to take her home in his car. Unaware that she's sitting just feet away from a murderer, Marianne obliges and happily directs Little deeper into Miami's red light district. 
But as soon as Little reaches Marianne's small house, he stops the car decisively, ready to make his kill. He leans over onto the unassuming woman, his outstretched hands trembling in their excitement as he reaches for her neck, his mind perhaps filled with the disturbing images of what's to come. But suddenly he's interrupted by a loud tapping on the window. Two of Marianne's neighbors peer into the car and ask if she can quickly run them an errand. Completely oblivious to the danger she's in, Marianne agrees and begins her second journey in the gold car of a killer. Only this time, she'll never reach her destination. As Little continues north and heads onto Highway 27, his sexual fantasies boil in his veins and erupt in his mind. He violently swings off the main road and follows signs to leave the city, traveling along a dark, bumpy dirt track. The track eventually runs into an isolated clearing surrounded by trees and vegetation. Forcefully, Little drags a terrified Marianne out of the car where he once again uses his bare hands to strangle her to death. As soon as her body falls still, Little doesn't waste a second grieving the woman he barely knew. Pulling Marianne's body from the long grass as if it's nothing more than an old piece of dirty clothing, Little swings her over his broad shoulders and throws her into the murky depths of the hungry swamp. Just like with the murder of Brosley, no one will come looking for Marianne. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Having now proven twice that he can get away with killing, Little knows exactly the type of person, seedy location, and method of murder that will quench his desires and leave no trace of his presence. But before he's able to murder again, he's put behind bars for nine months. Considering this relatively short sentence, his crime is presumably unrelated to the murder of Marianne. Prison and parole will only keep women safe from Little until 1974, when he prowls the streets again, hungrier than ever for his next victim. It's now 1974, and Samuel Little is driving through Savannah, Georgia in his small white Ford Thunderbird. It's unclear whether he's committed any more murders since Marianne. Some reports suggest he's killed one more woman, while others insist he's laid low since his time behind bars. What is clear, however, is that as he drives through Savannah's historic streets, Little is on the lookout for his next victim. His disturbed mind knows exactly the type of girl to target, one just like Marianne or Brosley, a disadvantaged, vulnerable woman 
living on the edge of society. As Little slowly passes a seedy-looking restaurant, his eyes hover on a woman waiting outside. She's tall, African-American, and aged somewhere between 19 to 23 years old. Little greedily admires her petite frame and is drawn in by her youthful, pretty face. Correctly sensing she's at the restaurant alone, Little introduces himself to the woman and offers to pay for her meal. The two strike up a friendly conversation that lasts them all the way to her house, where he hungrily follows her into the bedroom. The house is a dingy, rundown shack in the middle of an impoverished neighborhood. Shared by the woman and an absent older drug addict, it seems to be the perfect place for Little's next murder. Would anyone notice her disappearance from here? However, for some reason, Little doesn't take this opportunity to target his next victim, choosing instead to spend the night with her. He perhaps genuinely enjoys her company or admires her physical beauty, so keeps her alive for now. But by sunrise, the woman's safety is no longer guaranteed. Little lures her into his white Ford with a promise of more sex and drives a few miles to a quiet parking lot. It's here, in his small car, where he lives out his twisted fantasies for the third time and begins choking the woman. His hands coil around her throat like a cobra, and then he viciously squeezes to make his kill. The woman's body falls limp. However, her heart keeps beating. With an unpleasant jolt, Little realizes that his victim is still alive, albeit unconscious but he can't let her live. He hurriedly carries her body to a nearby grassy slope and mercilessly strangles all remaining life from her. The petite body of this unknown woman is left lying limply on the grassy bank, dead for anyone to find. It's not known how much time passes, but Little's sinister prediction is once again proven correct. No one comes looking for the missing woman. So driving north to his childhood state of Ohio, he hunts his next victim. The map of Ohio that's been burned in his memory since he was five years old leads him to a sprawling Cincinnati neighborhood. Poverty and crime are rife here, and Little perhaps expects to pick up a sex worker from one of the town's more dubious alleys. As he glances up from the rain-soaked road to the houses on either side, his demonic gaze locks on his next victim. A tall, African-American woman is standing pressed against a glass window in an apartment block and, dressed in professional clothes and pointed glasses, she looks remarkably different to Little's usual targets. His curiosity is piqued by her intellectual appearance, so he strolls up to the apartment and waits in the rain for her to appear. When she emerges, he somehow persuades her to take a ride in his car. And as they drive through the pouring rain of Cincinnati, the woman admits that her professional look is merely a facade. She's in fact a sex worker who takes odd jobs during the day to make ends meet. With this confession, her fate as Little's next victim is sealed and her death warrant signed. Trapped within the two doors of his Thunderbird, at the mercy of his malevolent hands, and with nowhere to run or hide other than the seedy, soaking streets of Cincinnati, 
the woman is a sitting target. Little strangles her to death before dumping her body under a billboard advertising the state's most popular brand of cigarettes. By now, it's clear that Little is so much more than a murderer. He kills women he doesn't know, those who have never offended or hurt him, completely possessed by this never-ending, murderous fantasy to hunt down his next victim. There can be no doubt about it. Samuel Little has grown into a serial killer. To his haunted mind, women are perhaps no different than food. His tormented body thrives from the sustenance each murder fuels him with, and he greedily counts down the days until his next meal. This animalistic hunger to kill with his bare hands will infiltrate the red light districts of almost every American state in the years to come. Samuel Little is only just getting started. Over the next eight years, Samuel Little travels extensively around America in his cheap secondhand cars, terrorizing innocent women from some of the nation's poorest areas. His murderous obsession takes him to South Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, sometimes killing just one woman from the state, but occasionally returning for more. And although his locations change as he winds between states, his victims and methods remain chillingly consistent. Firstly, Little always targets the same type of woman. He hunts single, vulnerable females who don't have any close friends or family to go looking for them. Generally, his victims are from low socioeconomic neighborhoods who depend on alcohol, drugs, petty crime, and sex work. More than half his victims are African-American. This accumulation of factors tragically creates a type of woman who is somehow considered less deserving of legal protection. A woman who's repeatedly rebuked as a slut or junkie by the policemen who pass her by. And one whose death is written off as an NHI, no human involvement. But Samuel Little knows his limits. He'll later chillingly recall that he could always get away with it as long as he didn't mess around with people who are going to be missed. As well as keeping his victimology consistent, Little's methods of murder remain alarmingly similar each time. With every individual woman, he uses his large, powerful bare hands to suffocate before strangling her to death. Then, like an animal discarding its prey, Little loses all interest in the dead woman. He fails to dig a grave or even wipe his guilty fingerprints from their necks and abandons them in plain sight for the world to find. Even when, on the rare occasion that police find a body of one of Little's victims, their half-hearted responses only strengthen the serial killer's murderous determination. Cleveland, 1977. As the sun slowly rises and wakes the bustling Midwestern city into life, an elderly man walks down a gentle, grassy hill overlooking the rushing traffic of the town. The man calls out to his dog, instructing him to stay close as they reach the bottom of the hill where the main road slices through the grassy fields. His dog, however, stays where he is, possessed by an overpowering scent that forces the man to sleepily jog over to find out what's wrong. 
What he discovers is enough to shock him out of his daze and straight into a living nightmare. At the bottom of the hill, lying completely still, is a naked woman. Her dark skin shines in the morning sun as an assortment of jewelry twinkles on her bare wrist. Her naked body has no blood or obvious wounds and isn't disfigured in any way, apart from a vicious collar of bruises that encircle her neck. Cleveland police and forensics analyze the woman's body, presumably acknowledging the obvious strangulation marks left around her throat. However, as no one reported her death or filed a missing persons report, the police are under no pressure to solve her case. Refusing to rule it as a murder, they instead invent an outlandish cause of death that ensures they won't have to admit a killer is on the loose. Her death is ruled as a freak accident from a lightning strike. This careless, blasé response from police will come to characterize the case of Samuel Little. As many of Little's victims are sex workers, petty criminals, or women dependent on substances, all of the deaths are ruled as drug overdoses, deliberate suicides, deaths by natural causes, or alcohol poisoning. Police rarely consider murder. You see, they're used to homicide victims being ripped apart by bullet holes or torn with stab wounds, so slight bruising around the neck doesn't immediately flag murder. It's far easier for police to blame the victims than spend time and resources trying to catch an invisible killer. But although this neglectful attitude only strengthens Samuel Little's killing spree, it won't be long until the police are forced to act. After 10 years of escaping justice, Little will soon carelessly cross the line between what society deems acceptable and what it cannot tolerate. September, 1981, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Samuel Little stops his car on the side of the road and a skinny female sex worker approaches. She's dressed in thin clothes that barely cover her tall body and smiles temptingly at Little as he opens the car door. But before they can even agree on a price for her services, a different woman catches Little's eye. She's a short white girl, also dressed in revealing clothing, but Little notices she's carrying more weight than the other women. He roughly pushes the first girl away and points his large fingers to the second. No, no, not you. I want that one, he demands. With no choice but to obey the commanding man carrying the cash, the second girl approaches Little and climbs into his car. Her name is Melinda Laprie. She's a young, single woman living in a trailer park who's turned to part-time sex work to make ends meet. The extra weight around her waist is from a recent pregnancy. She gave birth to a baby boy just two weeks ago. Little promises to pay Melinda a good rate if she rides with him, so she agrees and is whisked off to a quieter part of town. As he's done so many times by now, Little drives to a deserted street with empty sidewalks and shuttered shops to begin his murder. He knocks the young mother out with a single powerful blow to the head before strangling all life from her body. After the murder, Little drives just a few miles further to discard her body 
before looping back and passing once again through Pascagoula's red light district. However, this time, little is not in the clear. Just a few days after Melinda's death, police receive a missing persons report from her father, and a search begins for the young mother. Three weeks pass until they find Melissa's dead body, and by now she's decomposed almost beyond recognition. It would be impossible to tell for certain what killed her. However, medical examinations reveal that she did suffer a significant trauma to her neck, suggesting strangulation as a possible cause of death. The question remaining now is, who strangled her? Samuel Little wasn't as invisible as he'd hoped this time, and several young sex workers come forward to the police as witnesses. They describe seeing a muscular African-American man driving a cheap secondhand car, which Melinda got into. They watched him drive away with her, but when he returned a few hours later, he was alone. Convinced this mysterious man must be the murderer, police interrogate the young women for more physical descriptions of him and gradually build a profile that looks strikingly similar to Samuel Little. Having been arrested over 50 times by now and spent years of his life in prison, Little's face is well known to the police and they have no difficulty tracking him down as he lazily meanders between states. He's arrested within months and held in police custody in Mississippi with a murder trial looking inevitable. However, while Little is restlessly brooding behind bars, a new development arises in his case. Florida police claim he's their number one suspect in a more recent murder. The dead body of 26-year-old Patricia Mount was found in September 1981, and witnesses claim to have watched Mount get into a cheap, broken car with a muscular African-American man. What's more, hair fibers have been recovered from Mount's body, and they match exactly with Little. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, Mount's cause of death has been ruled as strangulation. This second charge is added to Little's name and his trial for double murder is set for September 1982, where he'll face the scrutinous judgment of a grand jury in Mississippi. It looks like finally, Little's time may be up and he'll be locked behind bars for life. But incredibly, he'll somehow manage to avoid justice yet again. With two murder charges against him, a hefty criminal record stretching decades, years of completed prison time, and witnesses who swear under oath that he's the murderer, the odds cannot be in Samuel Little's favor. Except, unbelievably, they somehow are. Witness testimony is discredited by Little's defense lawyers who state that it's hearsay and cannot be used in a court of law. The judge rules on the side of the lawyers and witness testimony is struck from evidence. But is it possible that it's dismissed simply because, as sex workers, the women aren't the right type of witnesses? Although they are able to accurately describe Samuel Little from memory, his short curly hair, narrow eyes, muscular frame, and slow drawl style of speech, their testimony is not taken seriously. What's more, DNA testing is still in its infancy during this time, 
and any forensic evidence is considered inaccurate and unreliable. So although Little's hair fibers have been found on Mount's body, they can only suggest he was with her sometime before she died and cannot conclusively rule him as the murderer. Without witness testimony or impenetrable scientific backing, all that the prosecuting lawyers can do is remind the court of Little's stained and sinister reputation. He's been a criminal since he was 16 years old and has racked up years of prison time for violent crimes that include aggravated assault and rape. Would it be too far a stretch of the imagination to suggest that this aggressive, powerful, muscular man sitting before the court is a murderer? The jury face a difficult decision. They can either believe the words of a few female sex workers who have little scientific proof to support their claims, or they can trust the plea of innocence from a convicted criminal. Tragically, they choose to believe the latter. And so a man who at this point has murdered at least 15 women, has a violent history of assault and rape, and is undeniably guilty, is pronounced innocent and released free of charge. With his ego boosted higher than ever now that he's miraculously survived this brush with justice, Little moves to San Diego to reconvene his murderous journey. Although almost 20 women have been killed by his hands, the unstoppable serial killer is not even halfway through his murder tally. Confident in his immunity from the law, Little will continue taking the lives of mothers, sisters, and daughters from America's poorest neighborhoods. But there'll soon come a time when Little's murders will catch up with him. As he enters middle age, his crimes will become increasingly reckless and clumsy, leaving behind a trail of witnesses who want nothing more than to see Samuel Little punished. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. Police are forced to acknowledge that a serial killer is on the loose when the dead bodies of two women are found dumped in CDLA streets. An investigation is launched to catch the killer, and after years of failures, disappointments, and humiliating mistakes, police finally find and arrest an aged Samuel Little. But in 2018, as Little is dying in jail, a Texas ranger elicits a haunting confession that the elderly man has killed a total of 93 women. What begins is a long, sensitive race against time for Holland to match each confession to a real story and previous case. But Little's health is deteriorating fast and his memory is fading. Will Holland ever be able to discover the true identities of every woman Little ever killed? Find out next week on Deathbed Confessions. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.